Hey, welcome to PT Snacks Podcast. This is Casey, your host. And if you're tuning in for the very first time, what you need to know is that this podcast is meant for physical therapists who are looking to grow your fundamentals, but also do it in bite-sized segments of time. And today we're going to continue talking about tissue healing, particularly the nerves. And I think it's the perfect follow-up to last week's session where we interviewed Jordan Birdsong, who's a neurological clinical specialist on how to treat patients who have orthopedic issues in an orthopedic setting, but also have additional neurological deficits that we need to be able to manage. You do not want to miss that. So go back to episode 36 and check it out. But today we're going to go back into things like anatomy of the nerves and what can go wrong with them, particularly the peripheral nervous system for today. And then how we can use our knowledge of that to apply our expectations of nerve healing for patients, how to educate them on when we're expecting the full returns to be made, and then also how to optimize our treatment so that we can maximize nerve healing in the first place. So that's what you should get by the time you're done with this episode. But first, what is a nerve, right? What makes it up? So a neuron is made up of a soma, a cell body, an axon, and the the dendrites. That's like the very basic nitty-gritty, right? And its job is basically to conduct signals and messages. And so you have motor neurons, you have sensory and autonomic, and they allow us in the peripheral nervous system to communicate messages between the spinal cord and brain and the rest of the body. So the motor and autonomic neurons get their input from dendrites in the central nervous system, whereas the afferent get their signals from specialized cells out in the body to give it back to the central nervous system and give us information about our environment. So an example of like a specialized cell would be like Pacinian corpuscles for fine sensation. And then additionally, in our our nerve unit, you have cells that also help out with maintenance. So you have your Schwann cells that ensheath the nerves in a layer of myelin. And this is important for several reasons. So these Schwann cells help to support the release of neurotrophs like nerve growth factor, but they also improve conduction velocity. And the way that they do this is through a process called saltatory conduction, um, which that word might be bringing you back to PT school or even college, um, hopefully with good memories. And what that does is it basically just maximizes ionic transfer along the axons to the nodes of Ranvier. So what you need to take from this is a nerve that has more myelin has more speed. It's able to conduct velocity at a higher rate. So more heavily myelated nerve motor units, like your type A alpha motor units, they're going to be the fastest. Whereas after that might be your afferent muscle spindles, like your type A beta. And then the slowest on the other end of that spectrum are going to be like your type C fibers that help convey messages of pain and temperature. They are the slowest because they're unmyelinated. Okay. So keep that in mind. Now, in terms of what can go wrong, you may remember the classic classifications by Sedan of neuropraxia, axonomesis, and neurotomesis. So they're named basically in terms of like, hey, how bad is the damage? And so neuropraxia is going to be the least severe, and that's where you just have focal demyelination 
um, without damage to the axons or connective tissue. So this might be like a mild compression or a a traction of the nerve. You might have a little bit of decreased conduction velocity, and that might cause asynchronous conduction or even a total block that causes some muscle weakness. Okay. Now, a little bit more severe would be axonotmesis, and that's direct damage to the axons with focal demyelination, but there's still going to be continuity of the nerve's connective tissue because neurons are encased in connective tissue that binds them together into big groups of nerves, right? Now, the most severe is going to be neurotmesis. This is where there's a full transection of the axons and connective tissues around the neurons, causing complete discontinuity of the nerve. So obviously, transection of the nerve, not really a great idea, right? So those are our classifications, but um, you know, you're not going to see this on your script, right? Like it's not going to be, hey, lumbar radiculopathy with the touch of neuropraxia. It's you might know this by a different name in the clinic setting. Okay, so most of your compression injuries are going to be neuropraxia injuries, where the nerve passes through a narrow anatomical opening, such as in the carpal tunnel or the cubital tunnel. Hopefully, this is ringing some bells. And then you have focal demyelination at the site of compression with the absence of axonal connective tissue damage. Okay, so an acute example of this might be a radial mononeuropathy, or like Saturday night palsy, where it was compressed, nerve path was impeded. Now the nerve's not happy. But a chronic example of this would be like carpal tunnel syndrome, where that compression was not just one night, it was lots of nights and maybe even years. So in terms of the pathophysiology behind this, studies show that there are normal nerve morphology and neuromuscular junctions still present in a compression injury, but you might see a thinner and degraded myelin sheath as well as decreased internodal length. And so this causes that impedance of the conduction velocity. Now, what the body does in this instance is really not well understood. Um, There's several theories on how the body basically fixes this problem, but they do notice that there in these instances is an increase in Schwann cell proliferation, dedifferation, and an increase in something called schmidt lanterman incisures, which are cytoplasmic components of Schwann cells. And these are thought to basically boost up the metabolism of the myelin sheath, which in turn may increase the metabolism of the Schwann cells themselves. So this allows those cells to be able to regenerate and heal, assuming we take away the root of the problem, right? So this is applicable in a clinic setting to where, hey, something is causing a compression injury. What is the compression injury and how do we get rid of that so that the body is able to heal itself, essentially? A lot of times in physical therapy, we're not healing the body. The body's good at healing itself. We just need to help with that process. And when we can't, then it might be more of a surgical option where it's beyond the body. Now, those are compression injuries, right? But there's also crush injuries and transection injuries. So a crush injury is more of like an acute traumatic compression of the nerve from a blunt object. And it doesn't have to result in a complete transection. 
Now, remember, the definition for an axon autumesis is direct damage to the axons with focal demyelination while maintaining continuity of the nerve's connective tissue. So a crush injury might be an example of this to where the connective tissue is intact. It's not completely transected, but you have a disruption of the axon itself. Now, a transection injury is more of like neurotomesis, where there's a complete discontinuation of the nerve from a knife, a gunshot, glass shard, whatever it is that's sharp enough to cut through it, right? Now, if we're talking about big picture for the peripheral nervous system, because the peripheral nervous system heals differently than the central nervous system, if end organ denervation occurs, the body has a couple options on how re- how it might heal itself, essentially. And it depends on how much damage is done. So if we're looking at a nerve where maybe 20 to 30% of the axons are damaged, then body might try and go the approach of collateral branching. And this happens in the first four days and can continue until like three to six months until recovery. And basically what happens is in the motor units that are still left, that are still innervated, they're going to increase in size so they can compensate for the other muscle units that are now denervated. Then those ones, they have no signal going to them. So the body's like, well, we're going to get rid of you. And then that muscle shrinks. In the end, it ends up evening out. But it's just that the motor unit size of the remaining ones have hypertrophied. Now, the body, as it's trying to reestablish these connections with these branches, it's going to have a lot of extra axonal branches. And if those don't end up landing on a muscle fiber, then the body's just going to go through a pruning process to just get rid of them. Now, let's say on the other end of that spectrum, like 90% of axons are affected. The body's going to have to go through axonal regeneration. So in order to make this happen, the body goes through Wallerian degeneration. Basically, it's just going to clear up the distal stump get all the extra stuff out of the way that doesn't need to be there so that the environment is set up well to allow for new cells to take place and new growth to occur. And this happens in your first week after injury. So the distal stump breakdown makes way for a newly regenerating axon. In this phase, you're going to see granular disintegration of the cytoplasm. So there's going to be an inflow of calcium and sodium, which leads to a cascade of events, such as apoptosis to recruit the macrophages. Remember, they help to kind of clean up the site. And then there's an upregulation of brain-derived neurotropic factor, BDNF, and glial cell-derived neurotrophic factor, GDNF, as well as a few other things, right? Now, the proximal stump breakdown is more limited, and it usually only progresses to the first node of Ranvier. But in this process, the Schwann cells are the primary mediators, and they're going to change their protein expression to help form new Schwann cells. They're going to help clear up debris through phagocytosis and then recruit macrophages, and the Schwann cells will proliferate on the remaining endoneurial tubes or the connective tissue that's around the axon of the extracellular matrix to form a hollow tube. And that basically acts as a guide for the regenerating axon to regrow. So think about it like this. If you have a vine and a trellis, the vine, as it's growing towards the sun, um, it's going to be able to grow up the trellis and the trellis will help guide its path towards the light. Think of it like this. So the Schwann cells, if, if the connective tissue around the axon is still intact, 
like axonotomesis, it's kind of like a trellis for the nerve to go through it. It helps it to be more efficient as it's regenerating on, hey, what direction should the regeneration occur? If there's no trellis, then it gets really confusing. There's no framework, no guide to be able to make sure that the proximal end connects to the distal end. So if there is a guide, then it's more likely for that nerve to actually be able to connect to the opposite end and for re-innervation to actually happen in the first place. But if it's completely transected and there's no connective tissue to guide the process, then the likeliness that there's actually going to be reinnervation of the end organ a lot lower. Makes sense? So if basically you have a better healing prognosis if the connective tissue is still there, even if the axon is, is cut through, but the ideal scenario is the axon is, is completely fine and maybe it's just the myelin sheath. Well, let's be real. The optimal scenario is there's no injury at all, right? But in terms of this process, okay, so we've cleared up the area. We've cleared out all the debris. We have started a matrix. We're trying to regenerate both ends towards each other. Axonal regeneration happens once Wallerian degeneration is complete. So there's a growth cone that forms at the distal tip of the proximal bud, and then it's guided by receptors in the area. So it depends on where you read and research on the actual rate of regeneration, but um, typically you'll see the proximal segments may grow two to three millimeters a day, while the distal segments may progress like one to two millimeters a day. And as I said, there's a better outcome if there's a presence of an intact endoneural tube. Now, We've gone through Wallerian degeneration. We've gone through axonal regeneration. The last step is in-organ reinnervation. Now, this is not the same thing as complete functional recovery. Don't get me wrong. It just means that now we have reached the other side, but maturation is only possible if the in-organ is maintained. So there has to be stabilization of the neuromuscular junction. Okay. This process takes a long, long time um, for nerve healing. Oftentimes, if someone is getting a surgery to clear up the nerve path, maybe it's a laminectomy, maybe it's a fusion, you know, oftentimes it might be a year or even more before we're actually expecting to make full returns. Because if you think about one to two millimeters a day growing, that is not very much time. And so some things to consider, as we mentioned in the last episode, um, are for someone's healing prognosis, how long has that injury been in place? Has there been a compression injury for a long period of time where, um, like a neuropraxia, where it's just gotten worse and worse, where verity at that nerve is so great that it may never fully be healed again? Or... Was the nerve completely transected? Was it, were they, do they have a knife wound that went through it? And we're concerned about if the ends of the nerves are actually going to meet on their own. Okay. So the type of injury and how long it's been happening has a huge role in our expectations of the, the returns that we can expect for that patient to make. But you have to make sure that the patient also understands this too, because Most people, when they think about healing, they're thinking about 
bone healing rate or even muscle healing rate, something like that, where it's like, hey, it might be a few months and then I'm going to be up and running and ready to go. This is not the case with nerves. It is so important for you to be able to educate your patients on the fact that this is going to be a marathon and not a sprint because you need to manage their expectations. You do not want them to give up because there are things that we can do to optimize that recovery. For one, let's reinforce that neural pathway. Let's try and if there is activation occurring at the muscle that we're trying to optimize our gains in, let's keep working on that muscle. Let's let's form that connection. Let's exercise. Let's strengthen the motor units that are still present so that hypertrophy can can compensate for the denervated segments. Let's optimize blood flow. If there's anything that you've learned, I hope it's that blood flow can help to induce healing. Angiogenesis is so important, right? Now, nerves do well with higher blood flow. Oftentimes, we'll use this in post-operative patients where, you know, depending on their level of activity, we're introducing a walking program or maybe a biking program. Now, it depends on what surgery it was. Um, someone who had a disectomy or some sort of herniatus may not do great with a form of biking where they're in a forward flex position. Or for example, maybe someone it wants to do the elliptical, but maybe you're restraining them on the arms and they're just using their legs so that they're not causing as much torsion at their trunk. It just depends person to person, but start them off small, try and get their heart rate going. Like Jordan said in the last episode, trying to get above 70% of their heart rate reserve is great for optimizing nerve healing because it helps to activate those um, BDNF factors that help to promote neuronal healing and regeneration. So exercise has a great neuroprotective role for, for the central nervous system and the peripheral nervous system. It promotes neurogenesis and neurotrophins expression. This helps to improve the neurovascular unit integrity. It decreases apoptosis and it reduces inflammation. So use exercise. And if you're in a setting where you're not able to see patients through their full nerve expected returns, like, hey, I can only see them for eight weeks, their insurance only approved nine visits, but this is going to take years. You need to educate them on how they can continue to improve and get better so that they know what's expected of them. They can make the most of their recovery. They've been taught to be empowered, and now they are empowered to help themselves the best that they can. Okay? So it is a long road, but a very important one. And it's one that I don't feel as many people understand as much as they should. Now, keep in mind, this is a very oversimplified view of nerve healing. There's so much to it, and I'm sure we'll expand on it in the future. But hopefully this makes sense and ties to some pieces together on what those words mean, the neuropraxia, oxonotomesis, and neurotomesis um, that you learned in PT school and helps you to put it together in a practical application. As always, if you have any questions, you can always reach out to me at ptsnackspodcast at gmail.com. And I would love to answer those questions, but you can also find me on Instagram at ptsnackspodcast. Go ahead and follow that. Or if you haven't followed the podcast, follow that too. If you like the show, write a review. That helps a lot. Or share with someone that you feel like would benefit from this. Um, if you want to support the show more fully, then what would really help is if you follow that link below to buy me a coffee. 
And even if it's just a little bit at a time, that just really helps me to cover my overhead. Support can be more than just monetarily, right? On top of that, if you need to get some CEUs, there's another link below. I know this is great. It's like Christmas, right? There's a link below for MedBridge, which MedBridge has a ton of CE physical therapy courses. In fact, they have over 1,580 evidence-based physical therapy CE courses. Beyond that, they also have 7,000, a mere 7,000 specialized patient exercises that you can use whenever you need them, wherever you are. Um, They have interactive webinars by top industry leaders. They even have the first ever HEP patient mobile app that you can use with your patients. So take it from me, MedBridge has taken learning to the next level for over 200,000 PTs, OTs, ATs, SLPs, and nurses, as well as those they serve. So for a limited time, use the promo code PTSNACKSPODCAST to get $175 off your annual subscription. That's one year. This is insane. So follow that below if you need to get some new CEUs for your license. That's it for today, guys. I hope you learned something. And until next time, 